Welcome to Animals to the Max. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. This show is about animals and the people who dedicate their lives to them. And welcome everybody to another episode of Animals to the Max. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. Thank you, every single one of you, for taking the time out of your day just to listen to the show. You know, um, let's just be honest. We are living in a really, really crazy time. There's not one person I can guarantee who's listening to the show that has not been affected by the coronavirus in some way. Not meaning like, you know, someone that's been infected with the virus, but, you know, there's not someone listening who has not been affected by it. You know, whether it's losing your job or whether it's, you know, being home or, you know, missing out on opportunities. It's just, it's really, really, it's just a really, really strange time right now. And with the podcast, I feel like it's my duty, especially hosting an animal podcast, to bring in relevant experts to the show and, you know, talk about what's going on. And And, you know, there's a lot of misinformation out there. There's a lot of people blaming certain animals for certain things regarding the origin of COVID-19. So today I just wanted to provide you with a fantastic guest with some great information. And I promise you guys are going to love her. Her name is Lauren Ayers, and she is the Pangolin Conservation Coordinator for the Global Conservation Force. She is awesome. And she is a wildlife warrior who is trying to raise awareness about pangolins. Now, If you're listening right now and you're like, a pangolin? Pangola who? What are you talking about, Corbin? Pangolins are one of the most unique animals in the world. The only mammal actually covered with scales. And unfortunately, they are in serious trouble. They are the most trafficked animal in the world. And you're going to learn about them. You're going to learn why. And we're going to learn about how we can help pangolins at home. More importantly, we're going to talk about some things and kind of address some certain statements and some rumors going around. A lot of people are blaming pangolins for the spread of COVID-19. Some people are blaming bats. There's really so much that we still have to learn, you know, for this. I mean, we're all learning this. We're all in the same boat. Lauren goes over all of that. We also talk about the very controversial, we kind of go on a side tangent about Netflix's Tiger King, which is also trending. It's that new documentary series on Netflix, uh, which highlights exotic cats and Um, people owning exotic cats and some of the conflicts and it really puts a spotlight on zoos. So we actually talk about that as well. So a lot of trending topics here, a lot of great, valuable information. As always, before we get started, please make sure to subscribe to the show on whichever podcasting platform you listen, whether it's iTunes, Spotify, or Pandora. I'm just like so excited we got the show on Pandora. It took took like several months for them to approve the show, but I was so stoked because I love Pandora. So anyway, and also you can check it out on Google uh, or Corbin maxi.com. When you do subscribe, please leave a review. It seriously helps the show. It helps the algorithm get out there. It helps other people find the show, discover the show. Maybe there's young people out there wanting to find a new animal related podcast by leaving a review, by leaving a rating. It helps actually get the show out there. So I appreciate you guys doing that. And as always, please make sure to follow me on my social channels at Corbin Maxi on my Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. And folks, it's true. I'm on TikTok. It is uh, such an addicting, fun app, and I love putting like music together with the animals. I just, oh my god, I have such a fun time. So check out my TikTok page. It's Corbin underscore Maxi. And also, before we get started, a lot of you have reached out to me and asked how I'm doing, how the animals are doing. My animals are doing fine. If you do want to support the podcast or you know support 
maybe some of the animals that you follow on my feed during this really, really rough time, you can head on over to our Patreon page. It's patreon.com slash animals to the max. Even if it's a dollar, it'll go towards, uh, you know, web hosting fees, the podcast, or if you specifically want it for the animals, it'll go towards hay for the tortoises, fish for the snapping turtle, or, you know, dandelion greens for the iguana. Anything helps. So please do that. With that said, let's get to our guest. Please welcome to the show, Lauren Ayers. You guys, on the show today, I'm so excited. We have Lauren Ayers. She is the Pangolin Conservation Coordinator global of the Global Conservation Force, a wildlife conservation professional, animal care and behavior specialist. Lauren, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's good to see you. It's good to see you too. And can we tell people how you and I connected? Because we connected through Instagram. I posted a video about the coronavirus and at first I thought I got some hate mail from you and I was, I, you know what? I just was like, oh great. Here's going to be another hater because I talked about pangolins and having a tie in with the coronavirus and you basically reached out and you said, Hey, I'm a pangolin, you know, conservation coordinator. I'd like to get a good message out because there's a lot of, there's a lot of misinformation out there. And I thought, you know what, instead of just having a DM back and forth, let's invite you on the show. So yeah, so this is why we're on the show. So let's just cut to the chase. Let's just talk about what's going on COVID-19 and the pangolin. Absolutely. Well, thanks again for not like trashing the message. I appreciate that. <laughs> I'm so sorry if it came across as being a hater. Um, Sometimes I'm very blunt about things and then I realize like, oh, I need some emojis in there. So my <laughs> But I'm super passionate about pangolins, and especially since COVID-19 has come um, into everybody's life, uh, we have been seeing a lot more of pangolins in the news. And that's great for us that have been struggling for years to try and get the word out about pangolins. Um, And in one way, it might be good for pangolins as well, because they have been um, implicated as being a possible vector for COVID-19. However, Um, there is a double-edged sword that that hasn't been scientifically proven. Um, So we're trying to, I guess, spread the word about pangolins, let everybody know that it's not necessarily their fault if they are involved in COVID-19, and then hopefully um, get the word out about how amazing these animals are. Okay, so I could hear my mom right now in her car. She's my number one fan. Hi, mom. She's probably like, wait, did they say penguins, pangolin, pangahoo? So some people might be confused. What is a pangolin? So for those listeners who are a little like, I've kind of heard of them. Can we go into what they are? Absolutely. So pangolin, P-A-N-G-O-L-I-N, they are a mammal first and foremost. Um, A lot of people think that they might be a reptile because they are the world's only truly scaled mammal. Um, And I definitely have had people that are like, oh, wait, but isn't that an armadillo? And no, armadillos do have the same sort of keratinous modified hair type structure that covers their body. Um, But in armadillos, it's more of a shell or a carapace and big um, armor sheets, essentially, whereas pangolins have individualized scales that almost act like um, well, they're, of course, they're their armor, but some species, they look like fingernails. So it's like overlapped fingernails, essentially. So made out of keratin as well. It is so weird. And I told you before we hit record, I got to interact with one at the Turtleback Zoo in West Orange, New Jersey. And uh, it was a wildlife animal like bucket list encounter for me. And I was trying to explain, it was funny because I was with my wife. We also had a, another camera person who could like give, I mean, they were like, oh, that's cool. But I was like, but you don't understand. <laughs> it's like, this is like the giant panda f- to me of the animal world. And they're so special. And the scales are just, 
it's the craziest thing, the craziest sensation. Right, absolutely. Um, Turtleback Zoo, I have never been there personally, but um, I am very aware of their work with pangolins. They are involved in a consortium of zoos and a, one private facility here in the U.S., and they are basically leading the, the XC2 conservation efforts um, for the white-bellied tree pangolin. So they've done some really, really cool work um, within the consortium with breeding them and having the first captive births under human care. So some really cool stuff is going on with them. So that's really exciting that you were able to go to Turtleback and meet one of their buddies. Oh, I love them. And they finally approved because at first they were like, oh, you, you, like, you, you can't post the photo. And I'm like, are you kidding me? It's like getting a picture with like... I don't know, someone super famous. It's like, I can't post it. And then they finally proved it. But anyway, I was, yeah, so happy. The Turtleback Zoo, shout out. These guys are great. You know, when we talk about wildlife conservation, everyone or the majority of people, we hear about rhinos, we hear about elephants, uh, you know, lions are now coming in the forefront. Many people are unaware about pangolins and, you know, they're in serious, serious trouble. Can we kind of go into that? Yeah, absolutely. So since I've been working with pangolins, which has been about six years total, they have always been the number one most illegally trafficked mammal in the entire world. Um, And so six years ago, people didn't even know what they were, let alone did they know that they were going through so much pressure from the illegal animal trade. And actually, at the time, there was some still legal trade of pangolins. Mainly, they are getting taken from the wild primarily for their scales as well as their meat. In several cultures' ancient medicine, there are beliefs that pangolin scales have different medicinal properties. But like I said earlier, it is made out of keratin, which is the same as our fingernails. So scientifically, it has no proven medicinal benefit whatsoever. And, you know, a lot of times people say, oh, it's, it's China and it's Chinese medicine, and it really isn't. It's happening in Africa and certain countries, it's happening in other areas in Southeast Asia. And the United States is actually the third largest consumer and destination for pangolins, what? believe it or not. Are yeah, you a serious? Lot of people don't... Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. I mean, I'm over here blaming Asia. We're the third? The third, yeah. So when you look at the trafficking routes and the trade routes, um, China and Vietnam are up there really high, very close. Um, and United States is third. Uh, there are places as well in Europe that are receiving pangolins, Mexico. Um, so it's not necessarily that it's a, a localized problem to one country or one region of the world. It's a global issue. Okay. It's just, <laughs> it's, it grosses me out. And the thing with this, and it's really sad too, because isn't the pain, can we talk about the pangolins defense mechanism and how it's just completely like defenseless against humans? Yeah, absolutely. So pangolins are basically the most innocent animal that I think exists in the entire world. <sighs> they like don't have a mean bone in their body. I mean, I don't really know how anthropomorphic that is, maybe a little too anthropomorphic, but really their main defense is to curl up in a ball and hope for the best, which if you are about three pounds and you curl up into a ball and hope for the best and a poacher comes along, then you are just easily picked up and carried off. So there's not really a lot of defending that the pangolins, you know, actively are able to do to protect themselves, which is really unfortunate. Yeah. And they just roll up and they're basically just easy targets. And you mentioned, um, so they're from Africa and Asia, correct? Correct. Yeah. Africa and Asia, there's eight different species. Okay. Um, primarily the species that are in Asia are at least, um, in terms of estimated numbers doing less well. Um, there's the, they're, they are critically endangered or endangered there. 
Whereas in um, Africa, there are two species that are still listed as vulnerable, but all of the populations are declining no matter where they're found. All eight species populations are declining. And, you know, the African pangolins, they're seeing a lot more trade in the African species now. Previously, it used to be the Asian species. However, because the Asian species have now almost been hunted close to extinction, those traders, those traffickers are now going into Africa, or they have been for a while, and now we're actually seeing the impact of that on the African species. So it's really unfortunate. In the trade, do they go for a lot of money? Initially, no. So a lot of what we are seeing um, for the trade is a lot of trappers. So people that are rurally located, small villages maybe, um, even farmers, and they have someone that comes in kind of like a middleman and they say, hey, we're looking for these animals. Or they're just being sold at a random bush market or wet market in the area. And so these uh, kind of transient middleman will come through and they'll buy the pangolin. Maybe um, these are rough estimates, totally not probably correct, but maybe for like $5 or $20. And so that farmer or hunter is like, yeah, great, I'm going to feed my family for a week, whatever. But then that pangolin goes and it goes to a staging area. Nigeria is kind of the main staging area that we hear a lot about um, lately in terms of getting confiscations and things like that. So they'll stage them there, whether that means that they are held live or they are at that point parted out or descaled, whatever. Then they're sold in mass quantities and traded, obviously, globally around the world. And they can go for hundreds of dollars, thousands of dollars per animal, per kilo, and, you know, there's estimates that are all over the place. We, as conservationists, hesitate to give um, the actual estimate because we definitely don't want to drive up the market. If, you know, someone says, oh, that's this much money, I need that much money, and then they're going to go out and look for that. So we don't necessarily quantify it uh, in an exact term, but I'm sure if you Googled it, you could probably find a good number out there that gives you a good estimate. <sighs> okay. Sorry. Um, no, it's just, you know, and let's just go back to COVID-19 because that's just what everyone's talking about. So let's talk about these wildlife markets because it is, uh, it's very hard. So I'm trying to look at it, trying not to be biased because I am a Westerner. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, I didn't grow up. It, it's not in my culture, but you know, people could, and I don't even want to get into our factory farms because there are some factory farms here in the States who are just like, I don't even want to go there, but I mean, just horrific. So I'm trying to look at like both sides, but let's talk about these wildlife markets and what are your thoughts and a role that pangolins play in them? I know you kind of touched a little bit into it, but. Yeah. So um, the pangolins were implicated in COVID-19 as a possible vector for um, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which is what causes COVID-19. And it is not necessarily proven. Like I said before, there's no scientific evidence, no studies that have done that have been peer reviewed in order to determine the origin or the vector if it was transferred of the disease. So that's one thing that's the most important thing to note. And I know that immediate the media kind of took off with, oh, pangolins are the cause thinking that maybe that would help them. But pangolins may or may not be the cause, it could have come from another animal. And the problem with the wet markets is that you have animals that would never get in contact with each other otherwise out in the wild. So say a bat that's from a cave in China, and then you've got a pangolin that was smuggled over from Indonesia. They would never normally see each other in the wild, and then now they're in cages that are stacked on top of each other. So you have a, a disease that might have originated in a bat and indirectly got passed to a pangolin, 
And that disease, that virus, you know, recombinated and was able to be able to then get transferred to humans. So it's um, a very complicated process, but the basics of it are we shouldn't be putting animals in close quarters that are unsanitary in markets that would never be near each other. And that's completely beyond any of the ethical reasons. That's just a straight, you know, sanitation and disease vector problem. It is horrific. And I have problems even going, and I know I sound so ridiculous, but even going, because I'm in I'm in New York so much, which probably won't be for a while, but I'm in New York a lot for media. And I even have a hard time passing markets in Chinatown because they have nothing compared to what was going on in Wuhan, China. But I mean... Seeing all these live animals just sell, you know, sold for food. It's just, it, it's it it's so disgusting to me. I mean, do you think this is helping though? I mean, because I think it's I think it's helping that now people. I mean, obviously the virus is horrific, but it's like, wait a second, maybe we shouldn't be doing this in these live wildlife or wet markets. Yeah, you know, in a way, it it is helping, and China has passed um, some legislation to hopefully ban the wildlife trade and wet markets. However, um, there is kind of this idea that maybe now that pangolins are implicated in coronavirus or bats or turtles or snakes or whatever it is that might have come from, that there might be a blame put on them. So even though those markets are shut down, we don't want to see people go out and retaliate against them. Um, And, you know, here in in America or in the Western world, we might be like, why would you ever retaliate against it? Like, obviously it's not its fault, but we also have things like that where, you know, you have a shark that kills, you know, someone or a shark attack and people go out and just hunt sharks in mass quantities or like the rattlesnake roundups that happen in the South. Like, you know, unfortunately it's not something that's a localized problem there, but by being able to hopefully regulate it and control the sale, we can prevent diseases like this from, being more prolific in the future but it you know it's a time time will tell kind of situation and i mean back onto the markets we could talk about it's a breeding ground for new bacteria and viruses right i mean it's just like it's the perfect place it's like a great lab yeah 100 percent. so um I'm not an epidemiologist by any means. I'm not a virologist. Neither uh, am I. Don't, <laughs> don't ask. I have learned a little bit. It's been a while since my last, um, you know, genetics and microbiology courses. Oh, my but, God. Uh, Kill me now. I'm with you. I, oh, okay. Go ahead. <laughs> but my knowledge of it is that um, a lot of diseases, especially coronaviruses. So coronavirus is a genus of different viruses. So um, a lot of coronaviruses maybe hundreds of them are found uh, in bats and bats just carry them. They might be completely asymptomatic and they're just basic hosts for them. Um, And maybe if we came in contact with that bat that did have the precursor to SARS-CoV-2, we would not be sick. But viruses can reproduce very quickly and that viral RNA will sometimes combine with another virus that's very similar go through this recombination process and then be able to infect and become symptomatic in a different animal or a human. So the thought right now is that the virus possibly originated in bats. Um, They found one that is very, very similar in bats, a coronavirus, um, and then went into some sort of intermediary host, whether that was a pangolin or a snake or maybe even another individual bat, we don't know. 
Um, and then from there, whether it was through consumption or if that animal was symptomatic and maybe just sneezed on someone as it walked by, that's how it got transferred into humans. So until there's a lot more research done on it and done on the origin, we can't definitively say exactly where it came from. But in these markets, we do know that there have been several different uh viruses and diseases that have originated in wet markets, such as SARS from back in the early 2000s, was originated in a wet market and originated in a bat, went through that recombination and infected a civet, which is um, in the weasel family. Mm -hmm. A lot of people call them civet cats, and I don't know why, but that drives me nuts because they're not cats. Mm -hmm. um, but that is how SARS came about. So it's been proven that this can happen. And mm -hmm. so it is highly likely that it uh, did originate in one of those wet markets. In your opinion, do you think that wet markets, do you think they could be done? I don't even want to say like correctly or sustainably, or do you think that there needs to be a ban on all wet markets and wildlife markets? Um, that's a hard one because me personally, my feelings personally are, yeah, let's definitely not do that. But that's a very uh, short-sighted and um, now my dog is squeaking. I love it. Squeaky, so. I love it. <laughs> it's animals Emma. to the max. It's okay. I love the name Emma, by the way. It's fine. People love dogs. <laughs> she's probably going to just keep doing it. She's got this little puppuccino, so she's rolling around on her back squeaking it right now. Um, I mean, if I don't have kids, I guess I have the dog to interrupt, right? right? Don't even worry. Um, I'm sure my dog's going to bark soon, so... <laughs> Okay, sorry, where was I at? Um, so you were talking and I asked you a really difficult question and I know it's hard, but I asked you, do you think there's oh, a way, personal. yeah, per, I mean, do you think just about, just about wet markets, do you think that they could be done correctly or sustainably or should we just ban them altogether? So my views personally are not necessarily what is going to be maybe best for the global community. So wet markets do serve an important social purpose in certain cultures, like especially with the older generations. That is where they go. They get in there socializing. You know, in a way, we we in the United States technically do have wet markets. You don't see them as often as we used to, like when you and I were growing up, but where the in the grocery store, the lobsters are and the live lobsters. And we go and pick up a live lobster because obviously a live lobster is fresher than, you know, a frozen one or one, especially, you know, being in Idaho, I grew up in Montana, like we don't want a fresh lobster, you know, that has, you know, already been deceased for who knows how long, where did it come from? A live one is something that, you know, it's fresh, it's healthy, you know, it's obviously not got a lot of bacteria in it, right? And that same idea is what drives the wet market. That's why people want these live animals is because maybe it's an area where there's not a lot of refrigeration or, Food takes a long time to get from point A to point B. So if you have a live animal, you're obviously getting fresher food, right? So taking that all into consideration, I think there is a way to have wet markets that are sustainable, that um, don't involve species you know, interacting with each other that should never in the wild interact with each other, as well as having them be humane. Now, I'm not saying that I think you know, it is humane. Um, but I think that for us to change the entire world's view of eating meat is kind of a um, 
pie in the sky type of idea. We're not going to be able to do that. Um, so how do we make it better? How do we prevent things like this from happening? And of course, how do we prevent unnecessary animal suffering? So I definitely think there's a way that, you know, wet markets or at least um, meat markets as a whole could be improved to prevent these kind of things. Um, but shutting them down right now until they figure that out, I think is a good idea. And that I believe is what China's done so far. Yeah. And I know I understand the analogy with lobsters and tanks. I still feel bad for them. I don't eat lobster, but that's just my opinion. I don't either. There's like a website. Maybe some of our listeners can relate. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure. But just regarding sanitation, because you Google a wet market or a wildlife market and you just don't want to because you have animals stacked on top of each other. A lot of them don't have access. Actually, a lot of them don't even have access to food, water at all. A lot of them are dehydrated, you know, emaciated. They're going to the bathroom on top of each other. I mean, is I read, I mean, a lot of times the animals are butchered with the same knife. I mean, it's just like a disgusting, just a disgusting place. Yeah. I mean, it's a disease vector in itself, that wet market. Um, but you know, you mentioned what we have here, the factory farms and, um, as awful as they are, um, and whatever anyone's opinion is on them, they are definitely hopefully more sanitary than that. So perhaps instituting, you know, if we are going to hopefully change this without completely changing other people's cultures, maybe instituting regulations where, okay, you can only have the same species in here and you can't have endangered animals. You can't have animals that are taken from the wild. They have to have certain level of um, proper husbandry and care. You know, there's a lot of different things that would go into it. But in my personal opinion, no, let's get rid of all of them. But I can't, you know, sit here from my living room in California and dictate what happens around the world with other people's cultures, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And aren't pangolins... Aren't they illegal, though, for, for trade, correct? Correct. Um, up until 2016, it was only the Asian species that were illegally traded. Um, and then in 2016, CITES gave uh, protection to all eight species. So that's when the African species got um, basically brought into that kind of umbrella of trade protection. There's zero trade, no trade is legal. Um, however... That doesn't necessarily mean people aren't going to trade them or eat them or poach them, whatever, because if you look at drugs, for example, drugs is, a, you know, you have methamphetamine, you have all this crazy stuff that's happening here in the United States, which is clearly le- illegal, which is been <laughs> legal. illegal I was like, for a while, <laughs> um, clearly illegal. It's been illegal for a while. Yeah. Um, and people are still doing it. People are still dying from it. So even if you do ban things and make them illegal, it, a lot of it has to do with enforcement. And um, I don't think that those bans were necessarily being enforced to the extent that they needed to be to prevent something like this from happening. So even though the trade of the pangolins was illegal and they illegally were there, it, it's not like it was hidden. And up until a couple of years ago, there were several countries where you could just go into a market, you could go into a um medicine shop, medicinal animal product shop, and ask for pangolins or it would be right out there on the counter. So even though it was illegal and people knew it, it just wasn't being enforced. So I think it comes down at that point to more law enforcement in order to prevent animals that are endangered, like pangolins, from being in those markets. So I'm going to ask you a really, really difficult question. And it's something like I know the obvious answer. Well, I mean, for me, why should people care? 
Like, why should be like, you know, they are going extinct. Why should someone, if I'm driving in the car and I'm just like, well, why? I mean, what's the point? I mean, I mean, there are people out there. Like, why do we care? Why do we need to care and focus our resources on pangolins? And I obviously know why. I think there's, yeah. So anyway, I just, no, I just want to, I want to, I get it. I want to put that out there. I'm very good at being devil's advocate and asking that <laughs> myself as well. Okay. Um, and also trying to see it from both perspectives. So um, obviously I'm like, they're really cool. They're awesome animals. We should care about them. But for a lot of people, that's not enough. And especially with all of this COVID-19 stuff happening, a lot of the social media and things that I put out are about pangolins. And I've had tons of people commenting on them like, well, I don't care. Like, why should we save them when they're the ones that are killing all these people or even before the COVID-19? Like, well, what does it matter? What good does that animal do for us? And uh, I personally think that we need to take it as a whole. Like globally, we are this kind of interconnected balance between humans and animals and plants and everything else that is on earth. And if we start eliminating animals left and right, um, we are definitely interrupting that balance. So a very, very basic example of how a pangolin in particular can help humans, well, they're pest control. They eat ants and termites. So yeah, there's not a lot of them, but if you get rid of them, who knows what species of ant or termite might start really ramping up and becoming even more of an issue for us as people. And then you also have to consider, well, penguins were here for 500 million years, I want to say, so long before people were. There were ancestors of penguins. So we come in and in a very, very short period of time, geologically speaking, we have nearly eliminated a species that's been just fine for a very long time. So in my opinion, we should care because they've obviously been doing something right and we're doing something wrong if we're able to kind of get rid of them in, in such a short period of time. So later on down the road, if we keep making animals extinct or, you know, driving them to extinction, then I think it'll come for people, unfortunately, you know, and this might be a, a pretty good eye-opening wake-up call to people with COVID-19 is, oh, wait, we... Maybe we shouldn't be doing this. I think it's a big wake up call. You hit the nail on the head with that. And I'll say one thing, my opinion, they're one of the most unusual animals in the world. I mean, what? I mean, it's just like to take out animals like that. And you know, there are a lot of people, we are in the day and age where there are a lot of people who are, let's dig into another hot touchy topic are against zoos. And it's like, you know, you mentioned earlier, it's like when we bring up zoos like the Turtleback Zoo, or I think there's several other facilities, it's like the importance of zoos. I mean, can we go into that a little bit? Because some people are like, oh, I hate zoos. All the animals should be free and we should all live in this happy, you know, utopia world. It's true. Yeah. I deal with them all the time. People message me. Yeah, so. I, I do as well. Yep. Yeah, um, yeah, you do too. So, yeah. So um, I think one of the most important quotes that I've ever heard recently regarding this is that at this point in the, the the way that our world is, there's no true wild anymore. And the wild that we do have is not safe. So zoos are promoting conservation. Zoos are living arcs for different species. And if you're against zoos, then to me, that's the equivalent of being against conservation that is synonymous with being against conservation. If you say, oh, I don't want anything to do with zoos. Are there people out there that have animals under human care or in captivity that are taking very poor care of them and not giving them the things that they need? Yeah, absolutely. But if you're looking at 
AZA accredited zoos or zoos that have clearly put a lot of effort into their conservation work, not necessarily if they are AZA or not, because sometimes that can be a limiting factor if you're a small facility, that's who's doing good. Yeah, there's a difference. And literally right after I'm done with this podcast, I'm going to go film an IGTV about my thoughts on the uh, Tiger King. (laughs) So I'm like... (laughs) So fun fact, I started my career in Big Cat... Um, rescue. I worked at a place in Indiana. So um, there were several people on that show that it was like, I was watching it last night. And it's like, a weird flashback to a previous life. Like we had cats from that guy, Dennis Hill, that had the long beard, the long white beard. We had cats from him. We had cats um, that were indirectly from the Tiger King that had been sold to someone else. So that was just like a total trip for me to watch that because I was like, Oh, my God, I it just, it's crazy that that exists. Like, absolutely yeah. insane. Yeah, I have gotten so many messages and it's just like, we're going to actually, so I'm going to do an IGTV about it. And then um, I'm going to do a, a roundtable discussion with Chris and Angie from the All Creatures podcast on Monday. Oh, yeah. We're going to do and, you know, talk about it. But that's insane. I mean, what are your thoughts now that we're on it? I mean, if you worked in Big Cat Rescue, I mean, you're a great candidate. What are your thoughts on it? Um, You know, I think, I think that, it's hard for us to say a blanketed nobody should privately own big cats. But the problem is that there are people out there that do own big cats and do own them responsibly. They're not breeding them. They're not using them and exploiting them for petting and then having hundreds of adult tigers for, you know, 15, 20 years that are just living minimal lives so that they can continue to produce these um, cubs to pet. Uh, I think that there's a lot of controversy in the big cat world. I mean, obviously in that, you know, documentary, there's a ton of controversy between what's going on at big cat rescue, what's happening at the place wildlife and need what's happening down at, um, greater Wynwood and now, which is Oklahoma zoo. Um, you know, there's just a ton of different crazy things that are happening in that world. So I think it just needs to be reined in a little bit. And I think that, um, in my opinion, stricter laws on who can have them, maybe don't completely ban it, but definitely give, you know, a a better, um, like USDA needs to be able to have better oversight, I guess is kind of what I'm trying to to get at. Because there, you know, if you completely ban it, then you're getting rid of outreach and um, education facilities that, mm-hmm. you know, maybe have a bobcat as well as a bunch of reptiles and stuff that they can't have that anymore. And, you know, they serve an important, important purpose. Uh, a lot of zoos do still get their animals from private breeders. So that doesn't necessarily mean that they are, you know, poorly cared for or anything like that. Um, there could be private breeders out there that do a great job, but I think there needs to be a lot bigger oversight over what's happening. Um, because in certain states with no laws whatsoever written, like what was happening in Oklahoma, Texas, Florida, Missouri, a lot of states that are like that, they're basically, it's a free-for-all. Like, and, yeah. it, and it's unfortunate. I don't think it's fair to the cats either. Like the husbandry of the cats should be what comes first. And that's not what it, what's coming first for them. It's money and fame. And just to add on to that, like so I'm going to be filming something, I'm prepared for backlash because it's so easy to be like, oh, we, we should ban them all. And it's also, I don't think it's a very good spotlight for zoos either because you see people who are anti-zoo and they see this and like, well, perfect example. That's why they should be banned. So I don't think that's, it's not a good re- a representation for zoos. But 
I have been and working in the in the media. I've you know go on these shows, the Today Show, Late Night with Seth Meyers. I actually brought on Tiger Cub. So I've been to these facilities before. One in particular that a private facility that provides animals for TV, motion pictures, and they provide animals for like Jack Hanna, you know, Bendy Irwin, Robert Irwin. I've been to the facilities and I've seen the habitats and they're nice. So it's like, it's so, there's so many gray areas. It's hard to be like, well, private people shouldn't be able to do it. And it's like, well, I've actually seen with my eyes, like I've seen people who do it right. And so it is so touchy and it's hard. And yeah, it's definitely opening up the national conversation. I looked yesterday, it was the number one trending thing in on netflix and in the u.s so yeah it's crazy my facebook is just completely blown up with people like well i'm glad that i stuck at home this is on netflix so yeah uh, i i i've never heard of this wacko and you know and i and hold on and i want to say something i i big big that world is a small world so i i don't know if i'm 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 probably a little embarrassed for saying that I didn't know. No, <laughs> no, I just, but you know, and I don't have a lot of experience like you with bed cats. I've worked with them very briefly. Um, I did some volunteer work, but nothing onto that extent of volunteer and a rescue. But I think, in the, I think he did really love his cats initially, but then I think, and I think that, I think a lot of people who own exotic animals, the majority of us do love the animals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. But then it just, yeah, I think he loved them. And, you know, I think, it's funny, like, we always used to talk about how there were two different types of people that worked with big cats or were involved in the world. And there's the incredibly passionate. And, you know, they would do anything for the cats. And the cats are their entire lives. We worked six days a week for 10 hour days, like we didn't, you know, do anything. We didn't have an end day, we would just take care of our cats. And that was it. And then or an end time to the day, I just left out a few words there. But um, we'd go home when the work was done. But then we also had the big cat crazies, which were the ones that are just like, (laughs) I love them. I'm going to wear leopard print everything all the time, blah, blah, blah. But what we had was something in common, which is that we both cared a lot about the cats. Um, And so I think a lot of times people start out like that and then they kind of, for whatever reason, maybe, you know, being, I think one of the guys was talking about it in the show was like, you have a big cat and you feel powerful. You feel like invincible. Um, and so you, you definitely see people that start out with good intentions and then kind of go down the spiral. And I think in the case of Joe exotic, I don't know him personally, but it sounded like he had a lot of emotional trauma and issues. So, you know, you take that in combination with this, um, delusions of grandeur from having big cats and it's kind of a fatal combination in a way Uh, you know working with at a big cat rescue i mean obviously they're dangerous i mean uh, were you nervous at times or let's talk about what that was like because that's like i mean you were on the front line i love how we went from pangolins (laughs) to the tiger king it's okay though but this is what's this is what's trending people are interested so i I love it but yeah let's talk what is it like caring for a big cat and was it dangerous um i mean absolutely it's dangerous but i think one of the biggest things that um ends up being a keeper's demise or a, a big cat owner's demise is complacency. And so thinking that, oh, this is just my pet or, oh, it's okay. Like I can walk this close to the enclosure, blah, blah, blah. The facility that I worked at, we were completely 
protected contact. So we were not going in with the cats or anything like that. Um, all of them were rescues that had come from various places across the world or uh, not the world, the country. It felt like the world at the time in Southern Indiana. <laughs> yeah. It was so big. <laughs> world out there. And then all the people, oh, from the woodworks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. Um, and yeah, there's definitely times where you're scared, but there's a respect, I guess. You like are able to start respecting that cat for its size, for its power, for you know its ability to really do you some harm. And for me, I wanted to gain a mutual respect. So I'm not going in there with them, but I want to be able to come up to that you know, enclosure, be able to shift the animal over, be able to um, feed it without having the animal retaliate. I have a cat now. Um, having an animal <laughs> retaliate against me. And so for me, it was more about building that relationship and that trust. Um, were there times where I got spooked? For sure. But, oh. you know, uh, I'm also a very jumpy person. Um, so, you know, anytime there's like certain cats where you're like, oh, you walk by them and they're going to charge the fence. And every single time they would, and I would jump every single time. So, you know, oh. it, it kind of depends on the person. But, you know, the more you're around them, the more you understand their behavior, the the more comfortable you get with it and the more predictable they are. But, it, I mean, every day going to work definitely is dangerous for sure because – you know, it's, it's like that way with a lot of jobs, you know, you make yeah. one mistake and that could be your life or someone else's. So, you know, it is about being aware of it, I guess. I'm with you on being startled. Once again, we were at the Turtleback Zoo, same trip, and they took us, they have an amazing exhibit, by the way, they have a lion and hyena exhibit where they rotate the animals. And so they're able to go to their different exhibits, you know, throughout the throughout the week. And we went behind the scenes in the dens and they had one of their lions, his name's Demarcus, he's a big male, and he's such a scaredy cat. And so we went to the dens, he wasn't in there. Anyway, as our backs were turned, he ran in and charged in the den and roared and one of our the camera person she literally peter pants <laughs> like it is it's terrifying like it's yeah. like oh my gosh like i totally get that especially if you're indoors too oh, like the, yeah <laughs> the echoes it's insane Ooh. absolutely insane i think yeah i think definitely respecting them is the best way to stay safe and you know going in going into an enclosure with them and and assuming that they're your pet and they're going to behave exactly like your dog at home is ignorant, in my opinion, because you should know that they're still a wild animal. They're not domesticated. As you know, that takes thousands of generations or thousands of years, many generations in order to domesticate an animal. So tigers are tigers. They still have those instincts. So, yeah, you just have to respect them and keep your distance for sure if you're working yeah. with them. OK, that was a total rabbit hole. But thank you for giving me your opinion. Oh, it's good. It's trending. I like it. So back on to pangolins. What can people at home do now? What can we do now for pangolins? Um, I think one thing that's really important, especially with all of the media that's going on right now talking about how pangolins caused coronavirus, is for people to research it on their own and to find relevant up-to-date, credible sources and articles and to share those. So um, there are several articles I can actually share them with you, Corbin, Please. and maybe you can post them um, with this that is describing the process of the viral recombination, what we think might happen, why it's important to keep an open mind as to where it originated, and in turn, for pangolins, to be able to spread the word about them because not a lot of people know much about them Except for now, oh, they caused corona. Who cares? 
So I think being able to spread the word about them, their plight, share some videos because they're like super adorable. And oh. as soon as people watch videos of them, they're like, I'm in love with this. <laughs> the cutest animal ever. So A baby one. Oh my, oh my gosh. It's like, and they ride around on their mom's tail. It's like literally the cutest thing in the entire world. Yeah. Yeah. I just, yeah, 100%. They are so unique. And I think sharing, getting that message out there. And I want to put a point, CNN wrote something, which I really love this because they were basically, they were defending bats um, because people were blaming bats and they, mm -hmm. and they were basically saying like, don't blame the bats. Don't blame the pangolins, the snakes, the turtles blame us. 100%. Yes, exactly. It's true. Like we naturally and naturally we would not have bats flying around. They wouldn't be biting us. They, they don't do that. They don't, you know what I mean? They don't, but we've put these animals in such unnatural situations, habitat loss. We just talked about there really is no more wild. So it's like, we're the ones to blame. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the spread of the disease, we're the ones to blame, you know, through like not getting political, but like through proper governmental management, I don't know if it would have gotten this far, but I think that there was a lot of denial um, on the part of many different countries' governments. And unfortunately, what the scary thing is for me is that even though I probably won't get incredibly ill if I catch coronavirus, my sister, who is a transplant recipient, could, and my mom, who's had asthma, could. And, you know, I've got 90 year old grandparents. And so if okay, they get sick and they go to the hospital. Well, what happens when there's no hospital beds? And a lot of people, I think, aren't necessarily taking that into consideration, um, is that there's not going to be enough ICU beds. There's not going to be enough ventilators. There's not going to be enough care staff out there to take care of all of the COVID patients, potentially, let alone the people that are having normal emergencies. I think it's something like 40% of ICU beds, um, don't necessarily quote that, but um, in my readings, 40% of ICU beds are already taken up by non-COVID COVID patients at any given time. So take, you know, then you're going to eliminate all of those guys. Like it, it just is, it's really, really unfortunate. It's scary for those of us that have loved ones that possibly are going to be susceptible. I'm happy you taught on that or touched on that because people do need to take it seriously. I mean, you see footage of all these people in college, you know, partying, spring break, this and that, but it's in, I mean, they aren't taking it seriously, but it's like, my goodness, like that could affect, you know, their grandparents, someone who's ill and, you know, young people they're I mean, just today, they just reported someone who was 20 died. I don't know if they had some underlining illness, but it's like, it's not just the old yeah. people being affected by this. It's everybody. No. no. And I mean, asthma, asthma, exercise induced asthma, that is a pre-existing condition for this, meaning that if you already have decreased lung function, you could be a critical care patient. If you know someone that has smoked or currently smokes cigarettes, that's also a pre-existing condition. So right there, those are people that don't even necessarily consider themselves to be at risk or high risk, and they are. And so I think it's just incredibly important for everyone to think of the collective community, not necessarily themselves um, or their immediate family, but Think about the hundreds of thousands of other people out there that possibly are losing or have already lost a loved one. So to take that into consideration and just stay home and listen to podcasts like this <laughs> and watch the Tiger King and <laughs> we'll all get through it together. 
I like what you said. You know, we're all in this together and it could be scary. And I, you know, I've, I've talked to my wife about it. it. It's scary. Both of our, I own a wildlife education company. So just to be blunt, how I support my animals is by appearing, doing shows at schools, libraries to perform their vet care, animal care, whatever it is. And those have been put completely to a halt. I mean, so it, it's scary. I know you work at one of the finest zoos in the world. We won't really get into that. Um, but you, you work at a great zoo, and I'm sure that's affecting your work as well, correct? Haven't you had your hours cut? And it's probably scary on your end. Yeah, it definitely is. Um, I My position is in outreach and education, so I oh. do something very similar to you. Um, and our department, we tend to go to a lot of nursing homes and go to um, children's hospitals and bring animals there. So obviously that got shut down a long time ago. Um, and the zoo itself is close to the public. So Right now, we're very, very lucky. Um, I know not not a lot of people around the country or zookeepers, especially for that matter, are able to continue their pay. But um, at least in through April 5th, we are still getting paid our normal wage, which is really, really great. Um, and I'm incredibly grateful for that. And it's actually been very eye-opening to me. Um, we're working in two completely separate teams and have no interaction with the other team whatsoever. I miss my best work buddy. I don't see her. So we've been like calling each other because we're on the opposite teams. Um, but we don't know what's going to happen next. And so um, I just, it's scary for sure. Because, you know, after April 5th, does that mean that we don't have any more savings to pay us? Or, you know, are we going to start seeing layoffs? We don't know. And um, for me in particular, I've been involved in animal care nearly my entire life. So I don't have any other marketable skills. So it's not like I could just go out and get a job as a, you know, freelance writer or something like that and support myself. So hopefully, um, we're able to kind of contain this in the next couple months. And you and I can go back to being able to share our animals out with the public too. Yeah. I think the good thing to note is we're all in this together. Everyone, we just need to we, we, we need to calm down, realize that there is a light at the end of the tunnel, you know, and just like you said, just take this time instead of being negative, maybe be productive, maybe, I don't know, watch the Tiger King, download Animals to the Max podcast, just, you know, learn more, read, connect with people like I'm doing with you over Skype, um, having conversations and uh, yeah, just know we're all going through it. It's scary, but we'll all get through it together. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's awesome. Well, Lauren, thank you so much for coming on the show. How can my followers follow you? I love your Instagram feed. Yeah. So please tell my followers and I'll actually put a link in the show notes, but do you want to give us your handle? Yeah. So, um, my Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, which I haven't figured out, um, <laughs> is all Lauren's L-A-U-R-E-N-S wildlife. Um, so and <laughs> there's a plug. I love it. Yeah, she's, that's Emma. Um, she also has Instagram. Uh, and, but everything is linked on my website, which is just lauren.airs, or com. Hi. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank yeah. you so much. I'd love to have you back on the show, maybe in like a year or two to catch up with you. I know you've, you've done some incredible things. I read your, your bio, which is just amazing. Um, so I'd love to have you back on if you'd like to. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. 
Thanks for listening to the Animals to the Max podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends and family. Also, if you haven't already, hit the subscribe button. It really helps me out. As always, if you have any guest suggestions, if you want to email me personally, head on over to CorbinMaxi.com. And if you haven't already, check out our social channels. You can follow me at CorbinMaxi on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We'll talk to you next time.